Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, thanks for tuning in. I want to give a big shout out to you all for not only listening, but to the over 200 listeners who completed our online survey. We were given a nice list of excellent episode ideas, so the next three episodes are by request. Today we've got an awesome episode ahead discussing excessive sweating, aka hyperhidrosis, which is super common and affects almost 1 in 20 people in the United States. It is often underreported and underappreciated by providers, yet it is extremely problematic for the patients that have it in many ways. It's not only just feeling embarrassed by visible sweating, patients are often hesitant to shake hands with people, walk through airport security. I've even had parents scared to death bringing in their teenagers who are learning to drive with sweaty palms and having a tough time gripping the steering wheel. Hyperhidrosis is also one of those conditions like pattern hair loss or rosacea that you'll see during your skin checks and patients won't bring it up unless you ask them if they want help with it. And like many other conditions in dermatology, there can also be situations where we save the day by diagnosing something rare and dangerous going on internally, say carcinoid syndrome or a pheochromocytoma. So in today's episode, we'll go through some background on hyperhidrosis, discuss the red flags for those dangerous causes of secondary hyperhidrosis, and then run through the many treatment options. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Dude to give us some pearls. But before we get going, I want to mention our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. So, hyperhidrosis is defined as excess sweating that causes emotional, physical, or social impacts that worsen a person's quality of life. Examples of physical impacts from hyperhidrosis could be difficulty gripping pens or that steering wheel like I mentioned in the intro. Hyperhidrosis affects almost 5% of Americans and typically starts between 14 to 25 years old. And which area is most commonly affected? That would be the armpits, which is affected in nearly half of hyperhidrosis patients overall, while other commonly affected areas are the hands and feet, which make up almost 90% of cases that present before puberty. Again, almost 90% of hyperhidrosis cases that present before puberty affect the hands and feet. Other affected areas include the forehead and scalp, which is more likely affected in men, while less commonly affected areas include pretty much anywhere else on the body, including the trunk, inframammary areas, and the groin. Let's all just take a minute and align our chakras. Okay, now, before we get into the nitty-gritty, we can't gloss over the basics. Tell me what you know about sweat glands. There are two types of sweat glands, one being eccrine glands, which are most numerous and are responsible for hyperhidrosis, and two being apocrine glands, which become active after puberty and secrete sweat with proteins and fatty chemicals such as pheromones. Our body has between 3 to 4 million sweat glands overall, of which around 90% are the eccrine glands. However, apocrine glands have a higher density in our armpits and are present in a 1 to 1 ratio with the eccrine glands there. Yet, there's normally 10 times as many eccrine glands elsewhere on the body. So, why do we have all these sweat glands? What's their purpose? There are two big ones. Number one, to release waste products. And number two, probably most importantly, to regulate body temperature by cooling the skin when that sweat evaporates. If kids are born with significantly fewer sweat glands, such as those with hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia, they have a much higher risk of overheating and hyperthermia. 
As for the anatomy of eccrine glands, they consist of a secretory portion and a long duct that travels through the dermis and epidermis and it opens directly onto the skin surface. The secretory portion makes the sweat and is located in the bottom one-third of the dermis or at the dermal sub-Q junction. This location of the secretory portion at the bottom of the dermis is important because this is the depth that we can inject botulinum toxin for treatment, which we'll discuss in detail later on in this episode. Here's a throwback from episode one. Where are eccrine and apocrine glands located? Remember that we find eccrine glands nearly everywhere on the skin except for the lips, the external auditory canal, the nipples, the nail beds, the glands penis, and the labia minora and clitoris. As for apocrine gland location, remember the four A's for the axilla, areola of the nipple, the anogenital region, and the auditory canal where apocrine glands are modified to make earwax. It is also good to remember that eccrine glands, unlike sebaceous and apocrine glands, are not associated with the hair follicle. Eccrine glands also have muscarinic acetylcholine receptors, which bind acetylcholine released from sympathetic nerves. Again, our sweat glands have muscarinic acetylcholine receptors, which bind to acetylcholine that is released from sympathetic nerves. This innervation is important for a few reasons. Number one, you gotta know it for exams, since this is a weird exception where our fight-or-flight sympathetic nerves, which normally release epi or norepi, are instead releasing acetylcholine. Reason number two is that this innervation explains why we sweat when we're nervous. Our fight-or-flight sympathetic nerves are activated, they release acetylcholine, and that acetylcholine binds receptors on our eccrine sweat glands that make us sweat when Dr. Grumpy Pants is getting after us. I wouldn't have to get after anyone if I wasn't surrounded by imbeciles. And reason number three, knowing about the presence of these muscarinic acetylcholine receptors on eccrine glands explains why botulinum toxin injections work for hyperhidrosis, since botulinum blocks acetylcholine release. Before we talk more about hyperhidrosis, I want to quick mention that there is ongoing debate about the presence of apoecrine glands, which have characteristics of both gland types and may make up to 10 to 45% of our sweat glands in our pits. Please see the September 2019 JAD CME article on hyperhidrosis for more information on these apoecrine glands. So, hyperhidrosis can be primary or secondary. Primary hyperhidrosis is typically a clinical diagnosis and doesn't require lab work or much other testing. What are the diagnostic criteria for it? Any disease that is primary means that it occurs on its own, in a given location, and does not have a secondary cause elsewhere in the body or from the environment. So, for hyperhidrosis, 93% of cases we see are primary, but the other 7% are secondary, which means something else is going on that's causing the patient to sweat, whether it's tuckered out ovaries and menopause or something dangerous like a variety of tumors. As for diagnostic criteria, I know it can be boring to go over. 
But you gotta know these diagnostic criteria for primary hyperhidrosis since it's a common clinical diagnosis and the secondary causes that we'll discuss next can be serious. So to diagnose primary hyperhidrosis, a patient needs to have excessive sweating for at least six months without an apparent cause. And the patient needs two or more of the following six criteria. Number one, bilateral and relatively symmetric sweating. Number two, occurrence of excessive sweating at least once per week. Number three, impairment of daily activities. Number four, onset less than 25 years old. Number five, a positive family history of hyperhidrosis. And six, lack of sweating during sleep. These are crucial to know, so here they are one more time. To diagnose primary hyperhidrosis, you need to have excessive sweating for at least six months without an apparent cause and two or more of the following six criteria. Number one, bilateral and relatively symmetric sweating. Number two, occurrence at least once per week. Three, impairment of daily activities. Four, onset less than 25 years old. Five, a positive family history for hyperhidrosis. And six, lack of sweating during sleep. I also want to mention, you may read about other diagnostic tests for hyperhidrosis, like the starch iodine test, but they aren't often used for everyday clinic patients, but I'll mention them just for completeness sake. So, when you're seeing a new consult for hyperhidrosis, you gotta have these criteria down cold because you have to be comfortable asking questions to get your diagnosis and you need to search for the red flags of secondary hyperhidrosis. When did it start? How long has it been going on? How often do you get it? Remember, it's gotta be at least once weekly for six months. Plus, it typically starts at less than 25 years old. If the issues with sweating started at an age a lot older than 25 especially, that's red flag number one for secondary hyperhidrosis. Next, ask where on the body they're affected, because remember that it's typically bilateral on, say, the palms or soles. If it only affects one side, that's red flag number two. Then, ask how their sweating impacts their day-to-day. -day. Remember, one of the criteria is impairment of daily activities. Also, ask, do your parents or any siblings also deal with this? People may not always have the answer to this, but again, if there is a family history, that supports primary hyperhidrosis. And last, but definitely not least, ask does the sweating occur at night while you're sleeping or is it only during the day? If patients have night sweats, as we all know, that's going to be red flag number three and should trigger you to ask about other B symptoms such as fevers, chills, and unintended weight loss. Alright, medicine's all about repetition. So what are those red flags for secondary hyperhidrosis again? And speaking of, what are some of those causes of secondary hyperhidrosis? Remember, three big red flags for secondary hyperhidrosis are going to be onset after age 25, unilateral or generalized involvement, and the presence of night sweats. Again, the three big red flags for secondary hyperhidrosis are going to be onset after age 25, unilateral or generalized involvement, and the presence of night sweats. Secondary hyperhidrosis is most commonly generalized, but it can be focal at times, so keep that in mind. And as far as some of these secondary causes of hyperhidrosis, your mnemonic for the day is DENIM, which stands for the secondary causes of hyperhidrosis that could soak through your denim. And they include D for drugs, such as antidepressants, antibiotics like ciprofloxacin, NSAIDs, alcohol, or cocaine. 
Then E is for endocrine causes like diabetes or hypoglycemia, hyperthyroidism, pheochromocytoma, or carcinoid syndrome. Then N is for neurologic disease like Parkinson's, stroke, or psychiatric disorders. I stands for a variety of infections including acute viral or bacterial infections causing fevers, tuberculosis, or malaria. And lastly, M is for menopause or malignancies like lymphomas or myeloproliferative disorders. Again, I know that's a lot and it's definitely not an exhaustive list, but I think it's a good place to start. So here it is one more time. For your secondary causes of hyperhidrosis that can soak through your denim, with D for drugs such as antidepressants, antibiotics like Cipro, NSAIDs, alcohol, or cocaine. Then E is for endocrine causes like diabetes or hypoglycemia, hyperthyroidism, pheochromocytoma, or carcinoid syndrome. N is for neurologic disease like Parkinson's, stroke, or psychiatric disorders. I is for a variety of infections including acute viral or bacterial infections causing fevers, tuberculosis, or malaria. And lastly, M is for menopause or malignancies like lymphoma or myeloproliferative disorders. And again, this isn't an exhaustive list since it doesn't include all the drugs or other conditions like COPD or endocarditis, but I think it's a good place to start if you ask me. So, what are you saying? My cocaine habit is making me sweaty. It's something about menopause. How about I make you go into menopause, man? As for treatment options for hyperhidrosis, it will depend on a slew of factors, including what patients have tried and failed in the past, which body areas are affected, and how aggressive they want to get with treatment. I'll start by listing out all the options, and then we'll discuss some pearls for each. So, for hyperhidrosis, we have a variety of topicals, including antiperspirants and glycopyrrolate cloths, oral agents like glycopyrrolate or oxybutynin, and then there's botulinum toxin injections, a variety of devices including iontophoresis, and lastly, surgical procedures. Again, for hyperhidrosis treatments, think about a variety of topicals including antiperspirants and glycopyrrolate cloths, oral agents like glycopyrrolate or oxybutynin, botulinum toxin injections, devices such as iontophoresis, and lastly, surgical procedures. Alright, so more repetition. Gotta keep that brain moving. So what are some of these topical treatments again? Let's start with the antiperspirants. The main ingredient is typically aluminum chloride that is available over the counter or as a prescription in concentrations that vary from 6 up to 40%. Aluminum chloride works by forming precipitates with sweat that block the sweat ducts. They are most effective for the armpits, but they are also worth a shot on the thicker skin of sweaty hands and feet. There is a long list of over-the-counter brands that I recommend, so I've included a link in the show notes that lists out the options and includes links to buying them online. But for antiperspirants, it's super important to counsel your patients on proper use. Otherwise, just like the retinoids and acne, patients will misuse them 90% of the time without proper counseling. So, here are some tips from Dr. Grumpy Pants on how to use them and how to treat the side effects. Okay, hold on. Let me interject here before Dr. Dude tells you you can meditate your sweat away. Antiperspirants should be applied at night on dry skin and washed off in the morning. They work by blocking the sweat ducts. So if you try to use it when you're sweating like a pig, the medicine can't get to where it needs to go. Got it? 
It also takes a week or two for the medicine to block enough of those ducks to start working, so don't call me tomorrow and tell me it's ineffective. And once you're sweating very little or not at all, use it once or a few times a week for maintenance. And what about side effects? Well, it can irritate the skin, make it a little itchy, or even cause itchy bumps called miliaria. If this happens, take a break for an extra day or two and let it subside. Putting on a little over-the-counter hydrocortisone on top of the medicine at night can help to never hurt anyone. Now go off and conquer those sweaty pits of yours, and don't forget your copay. Mm. All right, so the next treatment for hyperhidrosis are the anticholinergics such as glycopyrrolate, which come in topical and oral forms. Since glycopyrrolate is an anticholinergic medicine, it works by competitively inhibiting the acetylcholine receptors on sweat glands. In other words, glycopyrrolate works by getting in the way of the on switch for the sweat glands. One topical version is the 2.4% glycopyronium class a.k.a. Q-Brexa, spelled Q-B-R-E-X-Z-A, which is swiped once under the armpits nightly. Because it's an anticholinergic, there's a big list of possible side effects we'll discuss, but one I want to specifically mention is blurry vision and dilation of the pupils called medriasis. Because of this, it's crucial that patients wash their hands well immediately after using it on areas besides their hands. Otherwise, if the medicine is on the patient's fingers and they rub their eyes, they're going to get a dilated pupil for several hours. So, what do we do when the topicals aren't enough? We will often reach for oral anticholinergic agents such as glycopyrrolate or oxybutynin. For oral glycopyrrolate, it comes in 1 or 2 milligram pills and is typically dosed at 1 or 2 milligrams taking 2 to 3 times daily. Because it can have anticholinergic side effects, it's best to start slow at 1 pill per day and titrate up to the effect that you want while hopefully minimizing these side effects. Oxybutynin is typically started with a single 2.5 milligram pill once daily and titrated up to 10 to 15 milligrams daily. And what are the side effects of glycopyrrolate and oxybutynin? Again, because they're anticholinergic, there's a big list of possible side effects that include dizziness, drowsiness, orthostatic hypotension, blurry vision, dry eyes, dry mouth, GI issues like constipation or diarrhea, and lastly, difficulty urinating. Again, anticholinergic side effects to counsel your patients on from head to toe for glycopyrrolate or oxybutynin include dizziness, drowsiness, orthostatic hypotension, blurry vision, dry eyes, dry mouth, GI issues like constipation or diarrhea, and lastly, difficulty urinating. These side effects can cause patients to stop their glycopyrrolate in around one-third of cases, but you can often minimize them with slowly titrating up the dose that works best for them. Before starting these medications, you will want to check the patient's past medical history and their med list because glycopyrrolate and oxybutynin are contraindicated in patients with myasthenia gravis, paralytic ileus, or pyloric stenosis. You'll also want to be extremely cautious or consider other treatment options in patients taking other anticholinergics, such as tricyclic antidepressants like amitriptyline. Also, be leery of other medical issues like GERD, cardiac issues, or glaucoma. I should also mention that, like many treatments in dermatology, glycopyrrolate is a non-FDA-approved treatment for hyperhidrosis. You know it's funny. Meditation would actually be the best thing for old Furioso Pantalones. Okay, what's an injectable anticholinergic that we can use for hyperhidrosis?
This would be referring to botulinum toxin injections, which work best in the armpits but are also used on the face, hands, and feet. We'll discuss the exact mechanisms of botulinum toxin and the different brands in a later podcast, but for now, just know that they all work by blocking SNAP25 proteins, which prevents the release of acetylcholine from presynaptic nerves. So basically, you inject the botulinum toxin, nerves are less able to secrete this neurotransmitter, and you have less acetylcholine turning on the sweat glands. Fewer fingers reaching for the on switch. So how do you do it? First, patients typically have to fail other treatments if their insurance company is even going to consider covering it. Next, make sure that they don't have contraindications such as pregnancy or neurologic disease like myasthenia gravis. Once you have the right patient, you typically start with 50 units per armpit with 10 to 20 injections spaced out 1 to 2 centimeters apart. Again, remember that the sweat glands are at the dermal sub-Q junction, so you only need to be about 2 to 3 millimeters deep with your injections. Treatment successes are seen in around 80% of treatments to the armpits and typically last for at least 6 months. You can also inject the hands and the feet, but they are less effective at around 50%, and you can have more side effects such as injection pain and possible weakness of the hand muscles. So if botulinum works well for the pits around 80% of the time, what's something that works well for the hands and feet around 80% of the time that you actually have yet to mention? Alright, so the next treatment I want to discuss is iontophoresis, which is an FDA-approved treatment that is often recommended before oral agents when hyperhidrosis affects the hands and feet. And how does it work? Patients soak their hands or feet in a basin with fluid that is connected to the iontophoresis machine for 20 to 30 minutes. Then, a positively charged electrode drives the positive hydrogen ions into the sweat ducts and stops the sweating by a variety of proposed mechanisms that we really don't have time to go into. Patients start out by doing this three to four times weekly until they see results in two to four weeks. After that, they can treat every week or two as needed for maintenance. Iontophoresis machines can either be prescribed or purchased over the counter for several hundred dollars. They work around 80% of the time and can work even better when medications such as aluminum chloride or even a 2 mg glycopyrrolate pill are dissolved in the fluid. You want to be cautious with patients who have implanted metal, heart problems, or pacemakers though, and you'll want to warn patients of side effects including dry, red, tender skin, or paresthesias. Alright. What other machines are available for us to use? And if they're not cutting it, what's your last resort? So just to summarize quick, we've discussed antiperspirants like aluminum chloride, the topical and oral anticholinergics like glycopyrrolate or oxybutynin, and then we discussed botulinum toxin injections, all of which are great options for the pits, hands, feet, and face. Then don't forget iontophoresis for the hands and feet as well. In the interest of time, I just want to quickly list some other treatment options. There are a variety of machines we can use with efficacy around 80 to 90%, including Miradry, which is an FDA-approved treatment that uses microwave thermolysis. There are also ultrasound treatments, microneedling radiofrequency, or laser treatments that work well too.
And when all else fails, there are surgical options, including excision of the sweat glands, liposuction curatage to destroy the sweat glands using a cannula inserted through a small incision, and lastly, sympathectomy, where you cut the thoracic or lumbar sympathetic nerves. Sympathectomy is considered a last resort due to the risks of invasive surgery, and interestingly, almost all patients experience compensatory sweating. And what is compensatory sweating? Basically, once you remove innervation to the affected areas of the pits, hands, etc., patients start to sweat more on other areas of the body, like their torso, legs, or butt. So before we round out with a quick summary, we also can't forget about simple adjunctive things like avoiding triggers like spicy foods, switching to more absorbent cotton socks, changing those socks more often, wearing absorbent shoe insoles, and avoiding occlusive shoes. It's also crucial to never underestimate the impact that hyperhidrosis has on a patient's quality of life. Some studies say the impact is similar to that of bad psoriasis or even multiple sclerosis, since some studies show over 60% of patients feel unhappy or depressed about their hyperhidrosis. By the time patients reach your specialty clinic, they may have failed several treatments. Give them hope. Let them know you'll get them better and that it can be a bit of a trial and error to figure out what treatment will work best for them. Let them know that they're not alone and that an excellent resource can be found on the International Hyperhidrosis Society's website at sweathelp.org. Patients will come to their follow-up visits better informed and they will be better able to team up with you in a shared decision-making process for the best treatment for them. Alright, so before we round things out with a summary, let's take a quick mental breather and enjoy some music. So here's the summary. Hyperhidrosis is a common condition affecting nearly 1 in 20 Americans. To diagnose primary hyperhidrosis, a patient needs to have excessive sweating for at least 6 months without an apparent cause and two or more of the following six criteria. 1. Bilateral and relatively symmetric sweating. 2. Occurrence at least once per week. 3. Impairment of daily activities. 4. Onset less than 25 years old. 5. A positive family history of hyperhidrosis. And 6. Lack of sweating during sleep. Don't forget our three big red flags for secondary hyperhidrosis, which are onset of hyperhidrosis after age 25, unilateral or generalized involvement, and the presence of night sweats. For your secondary causes of hyperhidrosis that can soak through your denim, remember denim, with D for drugs such as antidepressants, antibiotics like ciprofloxacin, NSAIDs, alcohol, or cocaine. Then E is for endocrine causes like diabetes or hypoglycemia, hyperthyroidism, pheochromocytoma, or carcinoid syndrome. N is for neurologic disease like Parkinson's, stroke, or psychiatric disorders. I for a variety of infections including acute viral or bacterial infections causing fevers, tuberculosis, or malaria. And then lastly, M is for menopause or malignancies like lymphomas or myeloproliferative disorders. For hyperhidrosis treatments, think about a variety of topicals, including antiperspirants like aluminum chloride and glycopyrrolate cloths. Then we have oral agents like glycopyrrolate or oxybutynin, botulinum toxin injections, and a variety of devices, including iontophoresis, and lastly, surgical procedures. I'm not paying my copay for five minutes with that a-hole.
Don't worry about it, man. He's my partner. He's old and grumpy, but he's a cool guy. Just have a nice day, and I hope you find some peace. Wow. I bet this place is just hemorrhaging money. <laughs> Vicky, who was that guy, and why is he talking about the practice? Ugh. I don't know. I think he's some insurance broker or something. Never mind him. Alright, well, I'm no spiritual medium or anything, but I can sense some serious bad energy coming from that guy. Oh, whatever. I hope you guys have a nice day. Thank you for your help. Alright, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2021 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.